welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Una Lee from Virginia Mason Medical Center talking about recurrent urinary tract infections in women. Hello, good morning. My name is Wei Lee. I am a fellow in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at Virginia Mason in Seattle. I am happy to introduce Dr. Una Lee, who is one of the authors for the AUA and SUFU mm-hmm. uh, urinary, recurrent urinary tract infection in women guidelines. And she is currently faculty here at Virginia Mason in Seattle. She did her residency in Cleveland Clinic and her fellowship at UCLA. And take it away, Una. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Wei. Uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, um, partly because it's something that all providers, urologists, we see often. It causes, um, it's common in women, it causes a lot of distress, and we can really uh, meet their needs. The guidelines were released in 2019 and really um, provided a lot of um, evidence and guidance to guide this. So here are my disclosures. We have three learning objectives this morning. We're gonna review the guidelines on recurrent uncomplicated urinary tract infections in women. We're gonna summarize the evidence underlying these guidelines as well as important principles and concepts. And we're gonna do a case, couple case discussions to highlight these principles. So as you know, UTIs are prevalent, costly, and burdensome. 60% of women will experience an acute UTI in their lifetime. And of these, 20 to 40% will have an additional episode, of which a great proportion will have multiple recurrent episodes of UTIs. The evaluation of treatment of UTIs costs $2 billion a year in the U.S. And there's been significant growth of antibiotic resistance in the past 20 years. Um, interestingly, non-adherence to guidelines for treatment of acute UTI is more common in patients with recurrent UTI. So they're going off the path. There's been a shift in understanding of urine. Urine is not sterile. The microbes reside within the urinary tract, even in immunocompetent uh, hosts without symptoms. And these organisms are symbiotic with their healthy hosts. So antibiotic stewardship is the coordinated intervention designed to improve and measure the appropriate use of antimicrobial agents. It involves the selection of the optimal regimen, the appropriate medication, dose, duration, and route, in order to achieve the best clinical outcome while decreasing toxicity and selective pressure. Another important principle is that it should reduce excessive cost. So unnecessary antibiotic use is a um, thrust of the CDC, as 56% of all inpatients receive at least one antibiotic, and approximately 30% of these may be unnecessary. 60% of antibiotics are given to outpatients, and 12% of all office visits end up with an antibiotic script, of which up to 50% may be an inappropriate treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. Antibiotics are six of the top 25 drugs for cost and 10% of total inpatient drug budgets. So collateral damage is a theme of the AUA guidelines. And what this is, is that antibiotics are associated with collateral damage. There are ecological adverse events associated with antibiotic use and misuse. It selects for drug-resistant organisms. There's unwanted development of colonization or infection of unwanted organisms. The most common and potentially devastating would be Clostridium difficile. 
There's some new national estimates um, published in the CDC in 2019 about the antibiotic uh, resistance threat report. Um, Two million infections a year caused by antibiotic resistant bacteria and fungi, um, up to 35,000 deaths, and C. difficile is related to antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance in over 200,000 cases and 12,000 deaths. So this was an interesting article in Science in 2016 about the collateral damage relating to and being associated with a decline in microbiotic, uh, microbiome diversity. This occurs on an individual level, a community level, a population level, and an ecological level. It can be rapid and it can be persistent. There are observational, clinical, and epidemiological studies that are showing antibiotic exposure is associated with an increased risk of disease uh, pathogenesis. And they're even showing causal mechanisms now. Loss of species diversity leads to metabolic perturbations and immunological function. So this graph, the, the blue graph, is the decline in uh, microbiome diversity in the US. This occurs with modernization um, and um, use of antibiotics. And um, what can we do to um, further stop this damage? So the AOA guidelines um, statement of need is that it's to decrease the risk of antibiotic resistance, reduce the antibiotic adverse effects of antibiotics, provide guidance on antibiotic and non-antibiotic prevention strategies, recurse, reduce the recurrence of UTI events, and improve clinical outcomes and quality of life for women with recurrent UTIs. These, uh, the AUA Practice Guidelines Committee collaborated with the AUA, the Canadian Neurologic Association, and SUFU, the Society of Urodynamics, Female Public Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction, to perform a literature review of the literature and a consensus expert opinion uh, to define evidence-based management of healthy women with recurrent UTIs, establish guidelines in the evaluation and management, and to evaluate these treatment and prevention interventions. So the study population is important to um, be focused on. The index patient in this case is an otherwise healthy adult female with uncomplicated recurrent UTIs. The UTI should be culture proven and associated with acute onset symptoms. And they, we do exclude um, certain categories of patients, pregnant women, immunocompromised, um, abnormal urinary tracts, um, neurogenic bladders, et cetera. And we are not discussing the UTI um, in the setting of um, procedures or operations. As far as defining UTIs, it's defined, it's a common definition, two episodes in a six-month period or three episodes a year. Um, and to be uncomplicated, you have, can have no anatomic or functional abnormalities of the urinary tract, no immune compromise, and no multidrug-resistant bacteria. So a systematic review is performed. Um, there were criteria for inclusion and inclusion of studies. Um, 75 studies were included. The data was extracted and the relative risks and confidence intervals were calculated. The risk of bias was assessed um, and the data was synthesized with a rating of the body of evidence. So you've seen this before in other guidelines. These are the evidence strengths A, B, and C. The recommendations are either strong, moderate, conditional, clinical principle, or expert opinion. So Clinicians should obtain a complete patient history and perform a pelvic examination of women presenting with recurrent UTIs. This is a clinical principle. When you take a history, it should be targeted at risk factors, including life events, their sexual activity, history of pelvic surgery, menopausal estrogen decline, fecal incontinence or diarrhea, and antibiotic use. You also need to take into account the health conditions such as immunosuppression, diabetes, and neurologic conditions. In taking the history, it's important to assess for opportunities to educate. So inquire about their current prevention strategies, 
including reassurance about self-blame, um, assess their water intake, and what symptoms do the patients attribute to their UTIs? It's an opportunity to educate them that what a UTI is versus what a UTI may not be. Um, the um, hallmark of acute UTI is acute onset dysuria, frequency or urgency, and suprapubic pain. Patients often attribute odor and cl cloudy urine to a UTI, and that's not um, uh, limited to, um, you know, it's important to educate them that you can have an odor and cloudy urine in the absence of a UTI. It's not specific is what I meant to say. There also can be the issue of fatigue and confusion in elderly patients. And again, this is not specific to UTI, but the whole clinical picture needs to be taken into account. These symptoms often overlap in patients with overactive bladder, pelvic pain, IC, and vaginal atrophy. And so it's important to tease apart these symptoms and figure out what's baseline, what's an exacerbation, versus what's an acute um, episode of bacterial infection. So the physical exam should be part of a thorough evaluation. You need to screen for related findings, such as vaginal atrophy or the GU syndrome of menopause. A urethrodiverticulum would be an important finding that would be a fullness um, um, of the urethra uh, with or without discharge. You may see evidence of fecal soiling, flank tenderness, um, and incomplete bladder emptying um, could be um, demonstrated on a PBR. There may be other incidental findings that you find in your evaluation, such as pelvic prolapse, vulvar skin conditions, urethral vaginal cyst, or pelvic masses. So to make a diagnosis of recurrent UTI, clinicians must document positive urine cultures associated with prior symptomatic episodes. So it's important that you establish the diagnosis of UTI with prior cultures. Review their cultures. If they're in your health uh, record, you can review these if you need to obtain their outside records um, to do that. Because women lacking this microbial confirmation may be incorrectly treated for UTI when they should be evaluated for other conditions. Clinicians should obtain urinalysis, urine culture, and sensitivity with each symptomatic acute cystitis episode prior to initiating treatment. So each episode um, should be evaluated as a unique event, as non-adherence to guidelines is more common in women with recurrent UTI. Cystoscopy and upper tract imaging should not be routinely performed in the index patient presenting with their recurrent UTI. Studies have shown a low yield of anatomic abnormalities. Um, however, in someone who's not responsive to appropriate treatment or, or if there's a clinical suspicion, um, it can be done based on clinical judgment. You may be looking for urethral stricture or urinary tract obstruction, foreign body such as mesh, bladder stones, a fistula, a urethral diverticulum, or bladder pathology such as cancer. So to summarize the evaluation of recurrent UTIs according to the guidelines, you need a targeted history and physical to assess for risk factors, obtain a urine culture with each symptomatic episode, obtain a culture if persistent symptoms, um, obtain new specimen if the contamination is present. You do not need a test of cure for or surveillance testing, um, and cystoscopy imaging should not be routinely performed but targeted at those with um, a high clinical suspicion. So there have been qualitative studies on women with recurrent UTIs, and there's a high level of distress and, and um, anxiety related to recurrent UTIs. They sometimes feel that something is seriously wrong with them, and they want to know what is causing this. If this affects all aspects of their lives, um, emotionally, um, relationally, um, productivity-wise. There's often self-blame and guilt. They have um, a great deal of concern about antibiotic use and resistance. Um, they sometimes see doctors as villains and heroes. They're desperate for a cause and a cure. They're interested in healing and alternative therapies. 
and they um, one st recent study um, showed they wanted to improve the acute UTI experience, whereas the doctors were focused on prevention. So something I use in my clinic is the Four Habits of Patient-Physician um, Communication. And this is a, a course, and it's a, um, actually originally a Kaiser model, where you invest in the beginning. You're creating rapport, you're really listening to their concerns, you're sort of outlining the agenda for the visit. You listen their, listen their perspective so that you can address their needs. You demonstrate empathy um, with your statements, like this must be very distressing for you, or I'm, I'm sure this has been a hard. And then you invest in the end. You actually loop back and you um, provide the education. You make sure you've answered their questions and um, you make a plan for moving forward. So how can we better meet patients' needs with evaluating women with recurrent UTIs? I think it's important to validate and acknowledge their experiences, um, specifically ask for what concerns and questions they have and then answer in language that they can understand. Utilize the evidence and guidelines to educate and counsel them and then create a mutually agreed upon plan for evaluating them and preventing. So we're moving on to treatment. Clinicians should use first-line therapy, nitrofurantoin, um, Bactrim, or Fosfamycin, dependent on the local antibiogram for the treatment of symptomatic UTIs in women. So this is um, from the IDSA guidelines that were published in 2011, and this has been updated and is still current. Um, these antibiotics were chosen specifically for um, their low rate of resistance, um, their low rate of collateral damage, their efficacy, um, and it's nitrofurantoin twice a day for five days, Bactrim once a day for three days, or twice a day for three days, or one dose of phosphomycin. The studies have shown these are effective in treating UTI while less likely to produce collateral damage. And you should know your local resistance pattern and Bactrim not recommended for empiric use if the resistance exceeds 20%. Clinicians should treat recurrent UTIs um, in patients experiencing acute cystitis episodes with as short as duration as antibiotics as possible, generally low longer than seven days. And in patients with recurrent UTIs experience acute episodes associated with urine cultures resistant to oral antibiotics, Clinicians may treat culture-directed parental antibiotics for as short as duration as possible, generally no longer than seven days. So for these um, women with um, resistances on their cultures, many of these organisms are called by ESBLs. Many are susceptible to only to carbapenems. But before considering IV anti um, antibiotics, order phosphomycin susceptibility testing and check nitrofurantoin susceptibility. Um, many are susceptible to these um, agents. And you have to specifically ask usually for the phosphomycin testing. You also may want to consult with your infectious disease specialist in these cases. So following the discussion of the risk benefits alternatives, clinicians may prescribe antibiotic prophylaxis to decrease the risk of future UTIs of women of all ages previously diagnosed with UTIs. So these, are, um, these dosages and agents are derived from the clinical trials um, that have studied this, either daily prophylaxis or uh, pericoidal prophylaxis. Um, you can see the list here. It's single-strength Bactrim, um, double-strength Bactrim, nitrofurantoin, 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams, cephalexin um, at low dose or at 250 milligrams daily, or phosphomycin, three grams every 10 days. Um, trimethoprim, 100 milligrams, is listed there, but it has been shown to have some um, little less efficacy. For pericoidal prophylaxis, again, you have single-strength Bactrim, double-strength Bactrim, nitrofurantoin um, at either 50 or 100 milligram dose, and cephalexin. Okay. 
So the systematic review for this guideline identified 28 trials evaluating antibiotics for the prevention of UTI, recurrent UTI. Um, one of the trials was published um, comparing nitrofurantoin and phosphomycin in 2007, but all the other trials were published in or before 2000, or 1995. So these are old data, but they still kind of um, create our standard of care. And quinolones were studied back then as prophylaxis, but given the risks associated with ciprofloxacin, um, its use is not recommended for prophylaxis. Most were rated at medium to high risk of bias, um, mostly because they did not report the factors used in the assessment of bias and because of these are older studies. Results do consistently demonstrate the positive effect of prophylactic antibiotics. They are effective. And then you do have to acknowledge a mild increase, mild, moderate, severe increase in adverse events, usually GI or vaginitis. So nitrofurantoin, it's commonly prescribed in women of all ages. There are rare but possibly serious risks of pulmonary hepatic toxicity. When you review the literature, these events are exceedingly rare, 0.001 to 0.003%. Um, there, you know, really the risk would be in someone with underlying uh, lung condition. Um, and so you can avoid nitrofurantoin in these patients. Um, you can reassure patients that it is safe um, to take um, and you could screen them uh, with an oxygen level, um, you know, periodically. Um, it does seem like chest x-rays often would be, too, would be too much, but an occasional chest x-ray would probably um, screen them for the pulmonary fibrosis that's at risk. There also is a, a risk of nitrofurantoin in older adults. The 2015 BEERS update has been modified to recommend avoidance of nitrofurantoin when creatinine clearance is below 30 milliliters a minute. So keep that in mind in the older adults. So asymptomatic bacteria should not be treated in patients with recurrent UTI. There's actually uh, multiple studies, but one randomized clinical trial to show that women with a history of UTIs and ASB have found that antibiotic treatment was associated with an increased risk of symptomatic recurrence and development of antibiotic organisms. So it's found that um, actually asymptomatic bacteria can be protective of the host. So in summary, low-dose antibiotics for UTI prevention, the data supports efficacy and safety for low-dose antibiotics and decreasing the frequency of UTI. The majority of literature was published prior to 1995 and it's important to do shared decision-making, patient goals balanced with the risk of antibiotics and the known efficacy. So again, as a summary of recurrent UTI treatment, it's important to confirm the UTI with culture, treat per culture sensitivity, and utilize first-line antimicrobials um, as outlined by the IDSA guidelines. Um, it's important not to treat asymptomatic bacteria and to educate patients on that so they understand why, they're, why it's important not to treat that treating with short courses of antibiotics, and patient-initiated prophylaxis can be offered. It can either be daily, self-start, or pericoidal, and reassessed in three to six months. This is found to be safe and effective, and you just need to counsel them on the potential risks. So this is the um, AUA guideline um, algorithm. We've gone over the history and physical, the if suspicious of complicating factors, consideration of additional studies. We've reviewed antibiotic treatment, um, on the left bottom side, self-start therapy, episodic treatment, and um, oral antibiotic resistance. And now we're going to talk about prophylaxis um, that's non-antibiotic um, as well. So in the categories, um, the first category would be behavioral modification. There's been um, you know, a lot of myths and confusion about this. 
but the evidence shows that frequency of urination, hygiene practices, hot tub use, pre and post coital voiding, douching, and tampon use are not important, as the evidence does not support this. Certainly, common sense is important, and if, um, but to not over um, stress patients out about this. Water intake, actually. Um, there's level one data now to show that water intake is important. This was a randomized clinical trial of 140 premenopausal women with low water intake at baseline. And they were randomized to either no additional fluid or additional 1.5 liters of the fluid. They were actually shipped uh, bottles of Evian water. And this study was sponsored by that water company. Um, the prior outcome, or the primary outcome was frequency of recurrent UTI with symptoms and um, microbial confirmation. It showed that the water group actually had fewer UTI recurrences, a mean of 1.7 um, versus 3.2 UTI episodes over a 12-month period, and this was statistically significant. The reduction was um, in the order of 40%. Um, 40%. So this is a relatively straightforward um, intervention for women who you identify as having low water intake. Um, the, we still don't know, um, for women who are hydrated or overhydrated, we don't know the um, the benefit. So other behavioral modifications with some evidence. Uh, eliminating or reducing spermicidal products and or barrier contraceptives have been shown to um, decrease risk of UTI, as well as if patients have signs or symptoms of dysfunctional voiding, pelvic floor PT over 12 months has been shown to also decrease episodes of UTI. Cranberry. It's important to understand about cranberry. You'll get a lot of questions about it, and um, it's important to know the data. So here's a summary of the data. The, the active bioavailable molecule is soluble proanthocyanidins. It's also called PAC or PACs. Um, this inhibits FIMH binding to the urethelium. It's been demonstrated to have a dose-dependent effect on the UPEC adherence and um, inhibits the bacterial adhesion to the urethelium. And this um, photo is from a this figure is from a um, um, publication on this. The A um, diagram is placebo. B is 18 milligrams of the pack um, in um, urine cultured, E. coli cultured in urines um, after consumption of this. C is 36 milligrams and D is 72 milligrams. So these are people who um, consumed the cranberry powder containing this, this um, documented dosage of PACs, and then the E. coli was cultured in their urine. Um, so it showed that the 36 to 72 milligrams was um, most effective. It's also important to know the difference between soluble pack and insoluble pack. So soluble pack is from cranberry juice or juice-based extracts, powders, and supplements made from these juice extracts. This is the active ingredient that's going to um, have the most efficacy for antibacterial adhesion. The insoluble packs are supplements made from seeds, skin, stems, pulp, and this cellulose and this pectum actually interferes with the anti-adhesion activity. Okay, so that's the active ingredient that's been isolated. In the guidelines, eight randomized clinical trials were looked at, five were ultimately included in the meta-analysis. It was shown, it did show that cranberry was associated with a decreased risk of experiencing at least one UTI recurrence compared to placebo or nor cranberry. The limitations was that side effects were not often reported, and you, it's difficult to re recommend one formulation over another. Overall, this is felt to be low-risk um, intervention, um, and there's some more information on cranberry. So 
The confusing thing is that what's on the market are commercially available cranberry products in the form of supplements, and there's such a variability in the level of PAC. So you can see there's seven tested here by an external um, lab, and only one of them really had the kind of potent and uh, available level of PAC, whereas the other ones were on the order of, you know, one to four milligrams. And the labeling is very confusing um, for patients and you just don't know really what you're getting. And so that's the difficulty in this food-based sort of um, supplement. And if you talk about juice, again, you don't know how much juice to recommend. You don't know if the juice, what the dosage of the juice is either. The supplements, at least you get a concentrated amount, but you have to get a high quality supplement. So I thought this article was very interesting and helpful to kind of sort out all the data. It looked, um, you know, we know that cranberry has been used for, you know, many years to prevent UTIs among healthy women, but the efficacy has been controversial because of the conf conflicting conclusions in multiple meta-analysis over the years. And what they did was an analysis to show that it was a variability in the participants and the outcome measures um, that led to this confusion. So there's heterogeneity when you combine complicated and uncomplicated UTIs, as is done in this Jepson 2012 review. They're combining trials from women with recurring TIs, elderly women, children, pregnant women, neurogenic bladders, and radio, um, patients with radiotherapy. Whereas this Wang study in 2012 um, did, um, weighted things differently and showed that there was actually efficacy when you look at the clinical trials assessing prevention of recurring UTIs in generally healthy women. So it's the weighting of the studies when they do these meta-analysis and it's kind of like, you know, so you have to really kind of tease through the data to kind of look at what your um, target population is and what your outcome measure is. And so for this um, guideline, we were looking at generally healthy women with recurrent UTIs as measured by uh, culture positive UTIs. And when you look at that, cranberry was, there was some evidence and so we could, we could recommend that. Um, but it's, there's just still very limited data. So now we're going to talk about some other options, and unfortunately, there was very little evidence. There was very few randomized clinical trials. Um, there were imprecise estimates, methodological shortcomings, so we could not recommend any of these other options for patients. Um, the top of the list is lactobacillus probiotics, either vaginal or oral, and there is some compelling data that vaginal lactobacillus um, probiotics um, does have some efficacy, and this is um, available in Europe. But um, more data, data is needed. Um, and certainly there is some biological plausibility. Methanamine, also called Hyprex, um, is a antiseptic. It hydrolyzes to ammonia and formaldehyde and is therefore bacteriostatic. This has been used for hundreds of years in neurology. And it's attractive non-antibiotic option. It's sort of getting a resurgent. It's broad spectrum. It has limited side effects, very little um, association with resistance. Um, it's a one gram twice a day. Um, Sometimes people do have, it's kind of acidic, um, but it, it, again, the data was very limited. There are two trials that were very old. There's one um, meta-analysis, Cochrane Review. So there was not enough data to, re to recommend it or really um, make a statement about it, but it is being used clinically. D-Manos is also very popular with patients and they're always asking you about it. Um, it inhibits the, fem the, the mechanism proposed is that it inhibits FEMH or epithelial cell adhesion invasion. The data is just not, it's just super limited. There's not enough to really make a statement about it. Um, there are also supplements and herbs that patients will use. And again, um, limited data, um, likely no harm. Um, 
intravesical hyaluronic acid, again, limited data. And then the vaccine data is actually very promising, um, but not ready for prime time. So when we look at postmenopausal women, there's a prevailing theory that decreased epithelial glycogen leads to diminished lactobacilli, loss of the acidic environment, and then colonization with uropathogens. And um, based on this uh, evidence, uh, we were able to recommend vaginal estrogen to reduce the risk of future UTIs in peri and postmenopausal women. Four RCTs were looked at with a mean age greater than 65, 333, 313 women. Vaginal estrogen use was associated with a reduced risk of experiencing greater than one UTI versus placebo or no estrogen. There was a lack of clear um, superiority of one formulation of vaginal estrogen or another. These are the main um, formulations. They come in a um, suppository, a vaginal ring or vaginal cream. Um, and they're sort of equivalent low-dose vaginal estrogens. They should be distinguished from systemic estrogen, which is um, oral and designed to go throughout your body, whereas this is local and really designed to be in the sort of vaginal, vulvar, urethral bladder area. So we'd like to counsel patients on that. The risk uh, in the insert will list all risks associated with estrogen, and so sometimes it scares women. So you just have to really um, educate them that this is a different um, product and a different um, risk profile. And then also important to um, consult with the, their oncologist if they have a history of breast cancer generally considered safe, but it's important to co coordinate that care. So the AUA guidelines evidence for non-antibiotic options, this is the summary, um, for behavioral modifications, um, important to increase uh, water intake greater, um, additional 1.5 liters in low water intake um, women, avoid spermicidal products, consider pelvic floor PT if dysfunctional avoiding. Um, rec if they're going to do cranberry, you might want to recommend a cranberry product with 36 milligrams of soluble PACs and explain the mechanism of action. Um, and vaginal estrogen, also important for repleting this in peri and postmenopausal women. Um, for the others, insufficient evidence is needed. And as residents out there, this is an area of just need, much needed research. So if you have ideas in this area, I would encourage you to pursue them. So we have some. Um, Waylee, do we want to do cases or do you want to do questions right now? Want to do some? I think the cases would be. Okay, let's do some cases and then we'll have a little time for questions. So, um, a 25, and by the way, if you do have questions, please put them in the chat um, and Way will um, um, bring them up so we can discuss them as well. Um, so, this is a 25 year old woman with recurrent UTIs. Um, she describes acute dysuria that starts the day after sexual activity. She's generally healthy with no medical or surgical history. She's on oral contraceptive pills. She has a stressful job as a consultant. She's a non-smoker. On exam, she has a normal female genitalia, uh, no urethral fullness or tenderness. And um, her prior urine cultures were reviewed and she gets consistent E. coli UTIs with greater than 100,000 choline form formula units and they're pan-sensitive. So what guidelines does this um, highlight? Um, I think it highlights a few. The first one would be that you need to obtain a complete patient history and perform a physical exam in women presenting with recurrent UTIs. And to make the diagnosis, you must document their prior positive urine cultures and be associated with symptomatic episodes. Okay. So she says, you know what, I've been on so many antibiotics, I really want to avoid them. Um, 
I just don't feel like they're healthy. Of course, I need them when I have a UTI, but what, what can we do now? So what guidelines-based recommendations can you make to her? Another thing we can do is you can respond in the chat and we can um, summarize your answers. I'll just give you a pause to think about it. Based on this case, what would you do? Wait, are you getting any responses? So far, none. Okay. Do you want to answer away? Uh, so one one response was consider cranberry supplementation. Okay. And what would you? How would you counsel her on cranberry, just so that you kind of guide her in the right direction? Uh, there's currently no response, but you did make a very good mm -hmm. um, point and making sure that the amount of PACs was up to par with the uh, cutoff 36 and also pre preference towards soluble. Yeah. So what, what's going to happen in real life is patient's going to say, I get this huge bottle of cranberry at Costco and, um, you know, and on the bottle, it doesn't say anything about that. And so it's a little bit, it's just kind of, it's confusing out there. They're going to say, it says I, I get 3000 milligrams or something. And it doesn't really, it doesn't correlate. And so, you know, um, real life um, issues is that the, the supplements that have that labeling are, are more expensive because they're high quality and they're processed a certain way, where some other supplements are maybe a different process, a different way, um, and they may or may not be effective. And so I tend to let my patients make their choices and give them these recommendations and let them, let them choose. Um, but I do try to uh, steer them in that direction if they can afford it and if they're motivated in that direction. Um, so, um, but those, some of those supplements like the Costco one and those have been tested and they have, they're the ones with the low level, um, of the PACs. So it depends on what patients, what they need. And maybe that's enough for their, for prevention for them, or maybe they need something more. Um, other options for our, um, young lady with recurrent UTIs. I'm going to chime in that um, unless there's something way anyone responding one response was considering postcoital antibiotics exactly yeah I think that would be an option to give her the like you could even show her that algorithm and say look here are all your choices let's go over each one and then we can guide um, that because the nice thing about postcoital is that it's a little bit more targeted uh, meaning it's not daily, but it's sort of targeted at the moment of vulnerability. And so it's a little less antibiotics. Um, and so that might be something um, she'd be interested in. You could also do postcoital cranberry. That's not on there, but that could be something. Um, there was just another response, which is one of my favorites, increased fluid intake. Absolutely. So you want to assess her fluid intake. You want to see how much water are you drinking, get a sense of it. And if she had got low water intake, you can certainly say, you know, you need to increase it. I usually say drink two liters of water a day. Um, you know, the, the data shows an increase of 1.5, but it's about the same. Okay, so that's an easy, not an easy, but it's a relatively straightforward intervention. And the mechanism of that is, are you flushing it? Are you um, diluting it? I mean, there's multiple potentials, but it, it, it's, it's a doable and reasonable intervention. 
Um, another thing to assess for her would be, are you using spermicidal products, right? Are you, you know, is that, and then so eliminate those. These are kind of each, each little thing can contribute. And so to, to ask and then follow up. All right, any other thoughts? Okay, so this is, uh, she's choosing um, to maybe pursue cranberry. She's like, okay, I like that idea. I like that it's natural and um, I will go with your recommendation and, and, and get the one that um, you recommend or at least look for you know, something that seems high quality. Um, and maybe I'll take it after, maybe I'll take it daily, maybe I'll take it two after sexual activity, something like that. So three months later, so she does well. And then three months later, she comes in with acute onset dysuria, increased urgency, frequency, suprapubic discomfort. What are the guidelines based next steps? Respondents suggest a, getting a urinalysis in culture. Absolutely. So you can't just like, you know, sometimes you just have to follow the, the regular algorithm for an acute UTI. So we're going to obtain a urinalysis, urine culture sensitivity for each symptomatic episode, and then we're going to use first-line therapy. Because she might say something like, oh, Cipro works for me. It always works. I want Cipro. And you say, well, we're going to go with this because it's... Um, effective and it has less side effects and it's more you know less likely to cause down you know other problems and so as long as you explain it you know or you, and if you start talking about the risks of cipro they'll certainly be like oh i don't want that and they'll go with the what you recommend so her symptoms have resolved but now she's interested in a little bit more aggressive approach okay so you give her the options again go over all the guidelines based options and following the discussion of the risk benefit alternatives you can then prescribe in this case um, offer her antibiotic prophylaxis daily or pericoidal and um, if she chooses uh, pericoidal um, way what would you what would be your what would we recommend in her case we have a lot of good options that are fairly non-toxic we can do single dose Bactrim nitrofurantoin or Keflex I think all those are reasonable. Um, my go-to would probably be nitrofurantoin, 100 milligrams poiscoidally, um, just because it concentrates well in the urine, and then you save some of those other options for treatment. Um, but it, you know, they're all studied and considered safe. If she's going to go daily, um, then again, you have all these options as well. And for someone who you would want to go with daily might be someone who doesn't really associate it with sexual activity, someone who's just like, it just happens and I, there's nothing that triggers it, or maybe they're not sexually active and then you would, you know, you could maybe steer them in that direction. All right, case two. 75-year-old woman with recurrent UTIs. She also has genital discomfort, irritation, and at baseline, she has urgency frequency and urgency incontinence. Um, and sometimes dysuria between UTIs that's mild. She has hypertension, osteoarthritis, and history of breast cancer. On exam, she has pale vulvar tissues, resorption of the labia minora, and erythematous vestibular and vaginal tissues. She's tender, atrophic. So what are you gonna recommend?
there was a recommendation of estrogen. Excellent. So in pairing postmenopausal, um, oops, screen sharing is paused. Can you still see my screen? Yes. Okay. Um, in pairing postmenopausal women with recurring UTIs, clinicians should recommend vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future UTIs if there's no contraindication. Okay. The evidence on this is strong. It is considered low risk. Um, Clinically and anecdotally, it's, a, it's a, um, effective. Um, so she wrote, returns reporting that her atrophic vaginitis symptoms have improved, um, but she also says, you know what, I had my annual check with my PCP and a urinalysis was collected. It, um, here's what it showed, 50,000 calling form units of Klebsiella. What do you ask her? Any thoughts? I'm giving uh, you a respondent, uh, uh, respondent suggested that we should check for any symptoms. Absolutely. So you want to screen her for symptoms. And you know what? Someone like her has symptoms all the time. She has vagin you know, vaginal atrophy symptoms. She has OAB symptoms. She has a little bit of sort of discomfort symptoms. But what I like to ask is, do you have distinct UTI symptoms above and beyond your normal baseline? Like is it, and I just assess the, the severity of it, is it moderate, is it mild? And um, it's important to assess these symptoms in, in different sort of buckets, give a sense of the severity, and also give her a sense of, you know, part of it is if we treat every time you have a mild increase, you're gonna be on antibiotics all the time and I'm concerned about side effects. And so can we treat this with um, supportive care measures, you know, and explain what asymptomatic bacteria is. Like you live in harmony with good bacteria, bad bacteria, um, and usually it's this sounds to me or this looks to me like good bacteria, and so I would recommend not treating this and just, um, you know, saying that this is just a, your, this is your normal flora that we're picking up here. And if you explain that, patients are very um, willing and um, accepting of not treating something like this. So this is the guideline, Patient, clinicians should not treat asymptomatic bacteria. In this case, she was not symptomatic acutely. She had her sort of normal symptoms at that time. So in follow-up, she presents to the emergency room with chills, pain with urination, malaise, confusion. She's treated with Zosin and IV fluids and admitted for UTI and dehydration. Two days later, the urine culture shows 100,000 ESBL. She's treated for culture sensitivity and discharged on, um, medic, on oral antibiotics. And event, she does return to baseline. So then she follows up with you in your clinic, telling you this story. What do you want to do? Any thoughts? There was a suggestion of doing a renal bladder ultrasound. Okay. So in someone who's had like a urosepsis episode and some, you know, more severe um, sequelae, it's certainly reasonable to get um, to do, do some anatomic um, evaluation. You're looking for um, kidney stones, obstruction, uh, you know, something that could be contributing. I think that's reasonable. 
I'm going to move ahead here just in, in, because of time, but, you know, really, you don't have to do anything, but I think you should present to her options, you know, supportive care uh, measures, monitoring, uh, when she's symptomatic, submit a urine culture. You could consider prevention, um, you know, knowing that she had an ESBL. You could consider, you know, support, um, you know, all the options are basically at her disposal at this point, and it's a sort of a shared decision-making time. I certainly would con consider um, continuing her vaginal estrogen, um, partnering with her so that when she is symptomatic to submit a urine. Um, if she was going to do prevention, you would might want to do something that's um, nitrofurantoin or phosphomycin since she had that ESBL recently. Um, and um, yeah, a PVR, a renal ultrasound, those really, you know, weren't as strongly recommended in the guidelines, but I think clinical, you know, judgment is always, you know, important, and I think that's, um, that's reasonable. So she decides to continue vaginal estrogen, and then she wants a, a prophylactic antibiotic, phosphomycin, every 10 days, and she does well. I was going to have an alternative um, pathway for her, is that she gets C. diff and all this stuff, but, you know, that's, you see these patients, they take so many different pathways, and you have to kind of take them as, you know, as they come, so. In summary, I would encourage each of you to read the entire guidelines text. It's packed with good information, and so you have to know this data and the principles, and it's summarized well. There's a judicious, uh, you know, it's promotes the judicious use of antibiotics to decrease the risk of collateral damage. Urine culture should drive diagnosis and treatment. Um, no treatment is needed for asymptomatic bacteria, and you, you should perform shared decision-making on prevention options and educate them and communicate um, well. All right, so it's time for questions. And this is the, the final slide for the COVID-19 lectures and you can um, share your thoughts. All right, thank you, Dr. Lee, for mm -hmm. tackling a very pervasive and oftentimes challenging um, and disruptive part of the patient's course that many urologists will see. Uh, that was very engaging and interesting. Um, some questions that we have from the audience and uh, you can continue to submit as we as we present. The um, first question is your recommendations of using vaginal estrogen products in patients with history of gynecological uh, cancer. Absolutely. So vaginal estrogen products are considered low dose and um, not systemic. And so I would just uh, coordinate with their gyne uh, oncologist um, it depends on their history, how remote it is, um, you know, and their, their risk. But generally speaking, m most, if not all, oncologists that I've worked with have been okay with vaginal, you know, um, a vaginal estrogen treatment. Um, some of them even, let's say they've had breast cancer on tamoxifen, they develop these symptoms and these problems. And then in coordination with them, we put them on a vaginal estrogen, knowing that they have this history. Um, so, but gynecologic cancers as well, um, I think as long as it's coordinated and sort of cleared, um, you know, sometimes patients have that anxiety about it, but um, with the proper education and uh, collaboration, I think it's a reasonable, very reasonable option. Another question was during the process of writing the guidelines, did you encounter any data or consider recommendations towards the use of intravesical therapy? Yes, that's a very good question. So um, clinically, we see that people get gentamicin um, installations, bacitracin in installations, 
um, acetic acid installations. Um, there just wasn't, you know, the level of data needed to get into the guidelines. And, you know, we're kind of, you know, it was level one, you know, RCT data. And so there was just not enough data to recommend something like that. And so, again, more information is needed, more research is needed to um, sort of bolster these, uh, whether it's effective. Certainly, it does avoid the side effects of an oral uh, medication, but how efficacious is it? These are usually people who have catheters or self-cath, so they can get that into their system. Uh, I guess sometimes people have them come into the office to get it. Um, it's usually sort of, you know, refractory people where people are just trying anything, um, but um, certainly it's done clinically, just the evidence is just not, not all there yet. And do you have any recommendations towards treatment of patients with um, chronic kidney disease, specifically using um, methanamine or phosphomycin? Mm. Yes, I would coordinate with your pharmacist to calculate their renal dosing and whether this is uh, allowable. Um, it, it just depends. I think um, you, know, you could either do a renal dosing of the uh, medication or you know, look for alternatives, but there's usually something that, that could work. Okay, and how do you manage the usage of vaginal estrogen in patients who don't have optimal insurance coverage? Mm. That's an issue too. All of these things are driven by insurance coverage and vaginal estrogen tends to be expensive. The pricing and the cost has gone down over the years. Um, as there are some sort of generic options. And so um, I, I try to partner with the patients and say, um, for example, some of these creams may last them three months. And so like, I know this cream's expensive, it may be 80 or $100, but if it lasts you three months, it might be worth it to you, you know, if you kind of take the cost of that. Um, Usually one of the formulations will be covered by their insurance um, in some capacity, um, not all, but it'll either be the cream or the suppository or the, or the, or the ring. Usually it's the cream or suppository is covered. And there are some like um, companies now that are seeing this need and offering sort of lower cost options and coupons and um, um, things to patients um, from their website. And so I think with some creativity, patients can definitely get this. Do you have any experience using compounding pharmacies? Yes, actually that's, I should have mentioned that too. Sometimes you can get it compounded at a, a, a lower rate or patients like the idea of a compounding. Sometimes they have some like sensitivities to the, to the uh, um, cream that's used. Um, what is it called? Not the barrier, but the vessel that is put in. And so you can get a non, a very like hypoallergenic version of it. And so yes, I do use compounding um, pharmacies. Um, for that, for either patient preference reasons or um, sometimes cost reasons, because you can, um, it can be a cheaper cost depending. So yeah, absolutely, you can do that. And um, you, you had mentioned in your discussion that uh, there's evidence that asymptomatic bacteria can be protective in the context of recurrent urinary tract infections. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that it should still be treated in complicated patients, such as those with poorly controlled diabetes or neurogenic bladders? Good question. Yeah, so the data shows that in pregnant women, we should because of their risks um, associated with that in perioperative patients because of the, you know, our, you know that we're in the urinary tract. Um, 
it depends on the other populations that we're looking at, right? Because if we treat it in every patient with catheter, you know, or indwelling or, you know, intermittent catheterization, that would be a lot of treatment. If we treat it in every patient with immunocompromised diabetes, that would be a lot of treatment. And so I think it's sort of on a case-by-case basis. Um, it's a tricky situation. I mean, we're kind of delving into the realm of complicated UTI. Um, and I think, again, more, more information is needed on what is clinically meaningful and valuable and, you know, um, improving, their, improving them versus harming them. And then there's one more question on your recommendations for management in the patient with atypical bacteria, urinary tract infections. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about, um, do you think they're talking about um, uroplasma, mycoplasma, or something else? I think that's what they're referring okay. to. Yeah. Uh, Good question. It's not covered in the guidelines. Um, we did cover PCR um, testing because that's kind of out there right now, like more you know advanced testing, and you know it's a big uh, unknown right now. What's clinically meaningful on those on those some of those testing? Um, you know, are we just getting a printout of their microbiome, and you know, is it path is it pathologic or not pathologic? So I don't think um, we can, we really know about that um, area yet. That's that sort of the advanced testing. Um, as far as atypicals, um, the, the data is kind of mixed out there as well. Some people thought that it would be very beneficial to treat these, test for it and treat it. And some people think that it's, um, you know, colonization and not that beneficial. Um, so I think you'll see, you'll, run across different urologists who feel strongly one way or the other. Um, I happen to be in the, the other camp where I feel like if they want to have one empiric treatment of it, that's fine, but I just don't feel like it's the, it's the cause of these, um, these symptoms, usually. Any other questions? Uh, one question just uh, popped up is, um, could you comment on candidiuria? And is it, would, would you consider that really a urinary tract infection in, in a non-immunocompromised patient? Candidiuria, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, it could either be a contaminant from, from the vaginal area or it could be a real infection. And that's a different, that, that has to be, um, determined. Going back to our question about bladder irrigation, there is some data to show that um, antifungals and the ir you know locally irrigated may have a role in people with uh, fungal um, presence in their bladder. Um, but it's hard to know. Um, I think the data is out there showing that we should treat that in the, the fungus in the in the urinary tract. Um, but again, it depends on their you know, clinical symptomatology and their clinical suspicion judgment. All right, that looks like that addresses all of our questions and we're out of time. Yeah. So again, thank you, Dr. Lee. That was 
very engaging and I think very helpful for our viewers. Thank you everyone for tuning in and I hope you learned something about recurrent UTIs and uh, continue to read about it, think about it, and help patients with it. Okay. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.